Hello and welcome to FPJ Stories with me, Michael Barker. In this, our second episode, I speak to one of the titans of the industry, Christine Takeon. Now you know Christine as the Groceries Code Adjudicator and former Managing Director of Co-op Farms. But she's also Chair of MDS, which brings through the next generation of young horticultural professionals. And she founded a Women in Farming group, which has swelled to nearly 400 members. We're going to talk to her about all of that, get her views on the grocery industry today, and hear about what she's planning to do next. We'll also learn a little bit about some rather unusual hobbies and a very successful family member. You're listening to the podcast version of this interview. If you'd like to watch the video, you can find it at fpj.co.uk or Fresh Produce Journal on YouTube. But now, on with the show. Good morning, Christine. Hi. Morning. Hello. How are you today? Oh, quite relaxed. I've, I've, I've only just got off the narrowboat at about uh, five o'clock last night, so I'm, I'm still sort of in holiday mode. <laughs> How wonderful. How, that's a bit of a hobby of yours, isn't it? Do you do, you oh. do that regularly? It, well, yes, we've had, had the boat probably for, you know, 12, 12 years now and uh, just uh, just go off on, on big journeys every now and then. The, the big one, we've actually got the logo all down the side of the boat, was when we went to the uh, 2012 Olympics and we took it from home in Macclesfield oh. all the way down to the Thames at Oxford and then all the way up the Thames and we moored on the Regent's Canal where we were able to walk to the Olympics and also walk to Victoria Park where we could see it all on those massive screens. And uh, if you remember, there was a huge flurry about getting tickets, but actually you could mm. get quite a lot the night before. So oh, yes, we ended yes. up watching weird things like uh, weightlifting and, um, <laughs> and, and dressage and table tennis. <laughs> anyway, we, we, learned, we learned quite a lot about just, just doing different things. We just wanted to go to every venue, really. Yeah, it was a brilliant time. I remember going to the beach volleyball and um, it was a bit like watching the Keystone Cops because they, they play this sort of mad music in between the points. And it was just like... A, really fun day out rather than watching top level international sport like yeah that. absolutely great memories yeah. wasn't it? so we've left that logo on the side and people often say why have you got that on the side we said i've oh, just to record it was just a massive journey we just it was just such a thing such fun we actually covered it up when we went past the house of commons because if you remember there was all this fuss about people putting olympic rings remember, yes. bakers were told to take the rings out of their window and we had yes, it plastered indeed. down the side of the narrowboat so we covered it up with a black bin line and we went past the house of commons just in case <laughs> excellent excellent so how's your summer been generally it's obviously been a really extraordinary year from both a, obviously a personal and a professional point of view I, I gather you've been doing a bit of gardening and growing your own fruit and veg but but you also yeah. on, a, on a work perspective uh, extended your period as adjudicator to, to help the industry through this crazy time yeah yeah well well from from a personal perspective uh, you know, I'm one of these lucky people with a big garden and generally it runs away with me. So this year I've actually been on top of my vegetables. In fact, I often, because I used to be away from home three or four nights a week. And, uh, and, and this time I'm sort of been looking at my plant, you know, looking at them every day and thinking, you haven't grown. I'm used to sort of coming back and finding I've, I've got to just, just set too. So that's been a delight. And the other thing is that the, um, both of my children are in their early 20s, so you think you've lost them for good and you'll occasionally have them home for a weekend. But um, they, they, they basically moved back, as did their partners. And so we've, you know, I've sort of become a 50s housewife, sort of thinking what to cook every day and getting stuff out the freezer and planning which vegetables to pull up. So it's, um, 
it's it's been it's been a bit odd, but it's also been wonderful. I, I'm I'm somebody that always looks for the silver lining in every cloud, and you know, for us, it's been wonderful. Um, but I'm perfectly aware for some people, it's been absolutely dire. But I think just just look at the positives. Yes, most definitely. And uh, has it made much difference in terms of extending your your period as adjudicator? I, well, I think I think that's what I mean. I was actually due to I had a, a I'd been saving up all my holiday. And I was due to go to um, um, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Vietnam, um, sort of uh, in April, May. And uh, but I think it was more that things were moving so fast and the retailers were really just doing everything they could to try and keep their shelves stocked that I realized that some of the issues that suppliers were going to raise would be horrific for a new adjudicator who was trying to work out how, what, what standards had Christine, you know, you can't judge something that happened in March by a new person's standards in July. They've got to be judged them by my standards and what guidance I've been giving people. And uh, I just felt that was just far too much for anybody new coming into the role. And so felt that um, if I extended, I actually offered to do it for two to three months just to sort out any COVID issues, just so that a new person could come in and just focus a hundred percent on looking forward. Um, but um, because it's a, a third, you're only allowed, you know, under the law, they can only extend me twice. So I think to be on the safe side, they extended it for six months. Um, and, but then they didn't appoint the new adjudicator on the 25th of June, which they, that was over a month late so they were sort of partly using the fact I was there to continue but uh, you know the new adjudicator started now um, I've actually said that I won't do very much in August I'll be there just in case but I actually want them to get their feet under the table and uh, you know work work with the new team and think about how they want to do things but uh, I had been ringing all of the retailers every month to say have you got any covid issues what's coming up clearly listening to suppliers if they had anything and didn't really look like there was anything much coming up and i think because because i knew i was handling it i was very much on the front foot in putting out guidance and writing to chief execs and telling them this is what i this is what i expected i think that's made a difference yes most definitely so, I mean, it's, it's been seven years since you set up the office. Go, going back to the beginning, what, what did you find when you first came into the, into the job in terms of the state of the relationships between suppliers and supermarkets? And how far, how proud are you of, of how far you've come in that time? Yeah. It wasn't so much what did I find, because, I mean, I was in it. You know, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I had been at the co-op running the farming business, trying, and we were supplying at some point virtually every one of the retailers that um, I ended up regulating. So I knew what they were all like to work with. Um, and I think that there were some things that had really annoyed me when I was in the business, you know, such as being told who you had to buy your packaging from and knowing that you could buy it at half the price that you were being charged and knowing that there was clearly a backhander going to the retailer. And even within the co-op, when I was, we were growing and packing potatoes for them. And I said, look, I need to know what the backhander is because it could well be that we're both being ripped off. And they, they never told me, but they retendered. And interestingly, um, you know, it, it went it went to somebody that supplied it about half the price that we'd been buying for before which uh, and it was interesting I spoke to some very very large fresh produce growers in the UK who said to me we've been trying to solve this for a year or for two, sorry we've been trying to solve this for 10 years mm. and in 18 months you cleaned up an industry problem that's been going on forever and wow. you know now anybody can buy you know generally all the retailers give you two or three options to who you buy your packaging from and the backhanders have clearly all 
all stopped now. So some of the things I just wanted to get in and sort because they had annoyed me. And then other things were new things, uh, the whole issue of forensic auditing. And that being an industry in itself was completely new to me. So that was quite a, that, you know, there was some real education. In, in terms of how proud I am, I think it's, um, you know, I, I only really know that it's got better from what suppliers tell me. And I've had, I've, I've had wonderful feedback all along, not very often, but occasionally when people say, you know, it's really been a difference and such and such a retail is unrecognizable from what it was before. And many, you know, I sort of say, well, you never tell me anything. I never hear from you. And they say, no, but it's the very fact that you're there. That's what's making the difference. Yes. Yes, so, yes I am. I am enormously pleased with how the retailers have changed and they all worked with me very closely. And I, I think it was it was a matter of getting into the mindset that the retailers weren't my enemies and that the code compliance officers were my allies and they could work with me inside their businesses to resolve the issues that I was hearing from suppliers. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but does that mean, does that mean there's still things left to do? You've, you've obviously, we've seen the statistics in the reports that you put out and, and how high the levels of compliance have gone. Yeah. But what's still, there's obviously still a need for the adjudicator, as, as you say, as much just to have them there watching over as anything. But, but what still needs to be done in terms of tangible things, do you think? Well, I think that... Um Part of the reason that I decided to, to stand down, I mean, to be honest, when I started my first term, I said this will, so when I started my second term of three years, I said this will be my last one, is actually having this big ambition of everything that I wanted to do. And uh, the, the co-op investigation was a game changer, as was the Tesco one, actually. But the co-op one, it was very clear that all of the issues were to do with corporate governance that they they didn't want these things to happen but they were happening and so it that really inspired me to then think that you know clearly all of the recommendations were to the co-op were going to be to address governance is to say well i want to address the governance with all the retailers and everybody's got to demonstrate to me that there is no way that a random buyer can go off and do things or that they implement a new system and nobody realized that this could happen i mean you know the co-op so you know the the order requires all the buyers to be changed to be trained but actually it was the people in the depots that changed change the terms and conditions or it was people in new product development and it's like well how come nobody had identified that there were people in other departments that could impact a, a code a code related condition and i think that was the trick that that was i made all of the retailers go through their own internal analysis to how to make sure that these things couldn't happen in future and how they had their checks and balances and their audits and they listened to customer feedback so that they too could amend things so that was really my whole last year which i felt was really very much for the new adjudicator saying here it's here it is all it's all packaged up in a nice little parcel with a bow on the top now you come along with some new ideas um, so i think that uh, it, it's for them to think about new ways of doing things there are an awful lot of what I've worked on has actually helped the retailers become more efficient as well. So it's been a win-win for both sides, and that's how we found many of our successes. But uh, I think I would love to have achieved much more in the area of forecasting. 
So I think if I was to say, if there's another big area of focus, it would be on that because the win-win for the retailer is to getting availability on shelf. And of course, they all say they've got these big ambitions on waste, whereas actually the biggest waste is probably with their supplier. So if they yes. help their supplier more, then that could be tackled. I guess forecasting's never been in the spotlight as much as it is this year with the incredible challenges that the sector has faced. Has the way that the industry has managed the, the COVID crisis and, and done really pretty well in keeping the, uh, the nation fed, has that underlined just why it's so important that, that grocers and, and suppliers work closely together on the same side, do you think? I hoped you were going to say that. It is all about communication and recognising particularly in that packaging example I talked about at the beginning, that the way that things were set up was not actually leading to the most efficient outcome for the supply chain. And, and actually, if you, if you work on, you know, even things like the forensic auditing with these huge claims, the amount of work going on at both ends to resolve these things and the angst. I mean, I met in the Tesco investigation, some account managers, account managers, you know, their, their role is to manage the account and smooth things out, but mainly to grow business, identify consumer trends. They were spending 60% of their time chasing payments resolving payment issues i mean you know talk about a waste and of course for every email that's coming from the supplier there ought to be there isn't a waste but there ought to be a response from the retailer so the amount of angst at both ends and drop and drive you know the huge change that we've seen on that by moving to good faith receiving has again take out masses of admin and wasted time and i think those are the exciting the sweet spots you know where actually sorting things out for the retailer makes a big difference for, for both sides. Yes, most definitely. So, I mean, we could talk about the adjudicator all day and I mean, there's so many interesting aspects to it, but I do want to, to, to talk more about yourself and, and what happens next. What, what's your plan once you step down in the next few weeks? Have you, have you got something firm booked up and what are the kind of industries, sorry, the, the issues that you would like to help tackle for the industry? Yeah. Well, I've, I've got, I haven't got anything sorted beyond the fact that it's only ever been a three day a week role. So I have had other interests. So um, I, I chair MDS, which is the graduate Re training and recruitment scheme. And that, that's, that's been taking a day a week the whole time I've been doing this role. And that, that's continuing. Um, and uh, I'm also on the board of the AF group, which is a big farming purchasing cooperative in, in Norfolk. So that, that takes a day or two a month. Um, I've also been approached by a few startup businesses um, from cannabis to data analysis to uh, water, where I think they're, <laughs> they're thinking that maybe my connections and, and I think reputation, uh, you know, I, I think I add credibility to things. So I think that I seem to have found myself a little niche spot. But I think the thing is, first of all, I've got to decide whether this is something I I want to be involved yes. with so that that's what's been coming at me whereas I had I had hoped and maybe you know when I actually stand down that people will talk to me about you know opportunities either either working within businesses or on consultancy projects or non-executive directorships which were, are actually directly linked to the the food supply chain because that's my passion and you know, if there was, you know, if there was something to do with waste, something to do with packaging, those sorts of things really excite me as well. So I'm hoping that when I stop, that somebody might think, 
we know just the person to come and sort this out, but I don't think they'll necessarily come at me until I stop being the regulator. Yes, it would certainly make quite a story if you were moving into cannabis as as your next big move. Yeah, well. uh, but it is an extraordinary, they, they've, they've, the sector has, has grabbed a number of leading growers. So it's obviously, uh, it's obviously moving and there are things happening there, but they're not generally too open to talking to the press about it. So I guess it'll come right. out. Well, I, th- I think it's, you know, there is a massive, uh, obviously it's a massive pharmaceutical market, mm. but it's actually the general wellness industry where lots yes. of people are saying it's made a difference to this, that and the other. Um, and it's uh, about... That the people that I'm talking to are growing it in Guernsey and they're processing it there. So I think an awful lot of it is grown in quite odd places and you're not really quite sure. I think the key thing about the CBD is you've got to take out the hallucinogenic bit. Right. And the hallucinogenic yeah. bit is actually a very large proportion of the plant. Yes. <laughs> comes out of the extracts. And I, I think there's some, I think it's very, when you get the THC out, you can actually take the CBD out as well. So actually, okay. a, lot of, a lot of the products on the market haven't necessarily got as much CBD in as they say they have. Right. But okay. uh, it's, I think there is no dispute it has medicinal properties. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. yes. Uh, and I think it's a matter of how do you, how do you control that market? such that the medicinal bit is there and the hallucinogenic bit isn't. I mean, you know, even to do with convulsions, I think that the THC is much better at controlling the convulsions than the CBD. So yes. that might be the trace element of that is actually what's doing the work. Mm. Anyway, there you are. You can see I've learned. Well, to you've, you've, yeah, you've done, you've done your pitch for the, for the cannabis jobs there. I, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the NDS management training scheme and, uh, it's a scheme that I've followed closely over a few years. Um, FBJ's sort of sponsored the Synoptic Papers over the years. He's been a huge supporter, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we you know, absolutely love the scheme. And, and what's really impressed me is how many amazing young executives have come out of it and very rapidly built their career. But, but I think back to when I started my career in, in fresh produce, and I'd go to these conferences, and people used to absolutely despair that there were no good young people coming through. But I feel like thanks to schemes like NDS and others, that that's changing now. Do, do you feel much more encouraged about, about the quality of people coming into the sector now? Yeah. Uh, well, MDS is unique. You say schemes like MDS, and I think that uh, I, I'm amazed that it isn't actually duplicated in many other sectors. <clears throat> so, I mean, we spend all year round, for those that don't know about it, we spend all year round recruiting. You know, we will do assessments every week. And we have, at the moment, 15 trainees start every six months, every April, every October. And they work for us for two years, do four six-month secondments in our member businesses, doing very different roles. We make sure they do very different roles and work for very different sorts of businesses. In the meantime, they now do an apprenticeship. So they end up with a level five CMI you know, management qualification. And, uh, and at the end of the two years, the uh, member businesses generally fight over who's going to recruit <laughs> whom. So we now have 60 trainees. We have about 55 members. I've been very pleased to get some retailers in the membership because I think that anybody working in fresh produce to have spent six months in a retailer is very educational. So we have Aldi, Sainsbury's and Morrison's as members as well. But we also have, you know, small um, asparagus, strawberries, you know, salad growers, as well as some very large ones, and a huge number of service industries. We've got, I think, five agrochemical businesses and market research and engineering businesses as well. But we have, we are actually currently being 
inundated with applications for people wanting to join the scheme. Mm -hmm. And I think they see it as two years of work experience. All we ask them is to demonstrate some interest in the sector, to which mm -hmm. the most boring things is, I like food. But, um, but you know, we, we try and give us some, some understanding of the sector in the interview, because we're looking for their potential. We're not looking for whether they've already done all of these different works, different roles. And um, we are, say so we're inundated at the moment. I think it's the fact it's a two-year graduate training scheme. It's reasonably well paid and it, um, and they, it gives them two years of work experience and makes them highly employable, highly employable at the end of it. But we are recruiting mathematicians, archaeologists, linguists, geographers. So I, I love the fact that we're recruiting such a diverse number of people in, as well as people who've, you know, done maybe a, a food food and biz, food business degree or something like that um and uh, we, you know there you know we we are clearly a massive industry and we have loads of different roles for different types of people so this works very well and um as i say following the fact that we've got this big increase in applicants which i'm sure is because a lot of businesses are massively cutting back if not completely on their own graduate training schemes is really pushing a me message out to members saying you still need people and you might have cut back on your own graduate training scheme, but this is a very low cost. Um, it's a not-for-profit, not-for-profit not organization. And this is a very low cost way of actually, you know, having people on secondments, which covers a lot of people use them to cover peak production. Um, but so they might be maternity cover. It might be projects, but then it's a huge pool of talent to recruit from at the end of it. Mm. And um, I've, I've been surprised actually how some of the, particularly the, big people with big graduate training programs are recruiting a lot of our people because they are different um, you know they are they're very practical they've been moved around sometimes at very short notice doing four completely different jobs you know they're they're they're, they're it takes a certain sort of person to do mds yes indeed indeed and, and i've met them and they're, they're fantastic just really grounded intelligent interesting people um, given what you've said about the, the amount of interest in the scheme there is now, is there potential to expand it further, do you think? Yeah, well, we will, we, we will expand at the rate that our members are ready for us to expand. So, uh, and I recognise that if, that, you know, we, we've gone from about an average of about 30 trainees to 60 trainees in the four years in which I've been involved. So we've already doubled. Um, we've actually, this we've used this... Um, uh, recent lockdown period when obviously we're all working at home more and able to do get on with more things because we used to spend a lot of time traveling around meeting trainees which is now all being done virtually um and we've we've actually put in new systems so that we've actually got the back office now mm. to work bigger and i think you occasionally need a pause to do that so we've done that and now i'm on a bit of a, a recruitment drive to see if we can get some more members because if the members come in we can grow because we've got the trainees ready to do it but at the moment we're just looking at taking on our usual 15 in october but we've got um you know i think we we now, now that we've got sort of we've got a better web presence, but we're also with all of the virtual contacts and virtual careers fairs at universities, we, the net's being spread wider, and I think that's why we're getting more people. But we've noticed uh, a recent indication of number of people who are trying to retrain. I think they've clocked the fact that the food industry still needs people, mm. and people who've maybe felt their jobs are insecure are thinking, you know, contacting us and saying, you know, can I retrain? which is a new way of, you know, we've, we've got a board meeting coming up and that will be one of the discussions. You know, if, if 
do we just take graduates or do we take people in their 30s and 40s who want to retrain and desperately want to come into our industry? Yeah, most definitely. So, so your uh, clarion call, I suppose, to the industry is it companies should come forward, speak to MDS about how they can offer placements and support the scheme to, to help come and get be a member. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not expensive and, and, and it works. You know, it's been going since 1986 and the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the founder members, two of them are still members and one of them's actually recently applied to rejoin. <laughs> 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 and that's from 1986. Yes, it is something that works well. And um, yes, we'd, 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 we'd love to have some more members and, you know, they can be, it's, it's I think that, the, you know, the membership's about 3000 a year. So if you're just a dormant and you don't take people, it's not, it's not very costly, but I think that generally when people have got into it, they realize that everybody gets places, you know, somebody suddenly left. I think also within our industry, I'm hearing that um, people find that some of their Eastern European managers are now being tempted back home on an equivalent salary to work in maybe sometimes even better conditions than we've had as people are building new premises um, to the, where they can then live in a four bedroomed house with a garden. Yeah. And so we're losing some of our, some of the Eastern Europeans that have been promoted up. And I think that many businesses are saying to me, we recognize we've got to actually get homegrown talent now. We can't keep relying on Eastern Europeans mm. to, to come through our businesses yeah, so that's okay. another another avenue yeah indeed indeed um another group that you've been heavily involved in in fact you were a founder of it is the women in farming group which yeah. uh correct me if i'm wrong grew from five members in 2011 and now has yeah. nearly 400 members yeah um it's obviously in the farming industry's been traditionally male dominated and it, and it is starting to change but do, do you think we're seeing better environment for women now and, and what are the still still the key issues that that women feel that they're facing and challenges in this sector do you think yeah well, it is it is it started off being called ladies in agriculture and people didn't like being called ladies so we changed it to women <laughs> in food and farming so you know we have all sorts of people represented there from accountants to vicars you know then they're, they're not necessarily all farmers right. but i think that most of us would say that much of their career particularly the older ones you were often the only woman in the room and i think that it helps that we get these networks and people can have a laugh and a joke about it and uh, i think particularly with the the younger ones well you know we have all sorts of conversations like uh, you know it's really weird about you know what's the what's the right time to have children and um you know i i'm getting married and i don't think my husband really wants me to work and you're actually thinking in the back of your mind are you sure you're marrying the right person but um, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's it's quite it's quite and then i know i know i know there's a particular person who's a member i've known for quite a long while is at home with two children and just going up the wall with actually with, with wanting to do something and i put her forward for some for a job which she then got and it had previously been done by somebody who was in their late 70s <laughs> and I, said, I reckon that one of the things it really needed was an injection of youth and how to get younger people involved and i was i was really pleased that she got it but i think that we sort of help with with mentoring each other and putting people forward for things that they didn't realize they could do it's just to be honest it's like just being a good manager but just maybe some of them haven't got any mentors haven't got somebody that's actually pushing them in the background um 
it's a very noisy affair. You put a group of women in a room and the noise level goes up really high. When we have it in the farmer's club, I don't think they quite know what's hit them. Um, but uh, it's, it's just a network. I mean, I wish, I wish it could be mixed, but I think it works. The fact that it's, it's all women and a lot of people come because they, they do feel that they are still very much on their own. And, uh, you know, clearly if anybody, in, I mean, to be honest, if anybody in the network or outside the network rings me and wants a little chat about their career, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of your own career, you've had a, obviously a very extensive career in, in the food industry, but, but looking at your... Does that make your... me sound old? <laughs> not at all, not at all. Good, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but I was looking back at, at where you started. You actually qualified as a production engineer and your first role, at least on your, on your LinkedIn profile, was working at a high-precision zinc die-casting factory. Yeah. So uh, tell me, how, how, how did you, what were you planning to do when you started out, and how did you make that transition into food? Well, when I was at university, and actually I had already started on my general engineering course, largely because I'd done double maths, physics, and chemistry A-levels, and I didn't want to be a mathematician or a physicist or a chemist, which is why I... Did, did engineering um, that there was something called the Finiston report that came out that just said we haven't got enough managers in industry who've got engineering backgrounds that people in engineering get promoted to their level of incompetence and then we get arts graduates running all the factories and so I think I, I, I my ambition was actually really to run factories I wanted to make things and it was at a time when things it was, it was quite fashionable going into the banking industry and I just felt where's the satisfaction in banking? You know, you haven't actually made anything. So I like, I like making things and being involved in production and um, being a, you know, then when I, when I graduated with my production engineering degree, I, I applied to, um, you know, the likes of Unilever and P&G and, and Mars and Coates, Viella and places where I understood their products. And I, um, I was actually tossing up between joining, joining Mars and Coates, Viella and uh, Coates asked me what, you know, that, that at the time, you know, that was Jaeger clothing. You know, I, I thought I understood what they made. And um, they asked me, what would make you join us? And I said, I wanted to work overseas. And they asked me which country. And I said, Germany. And they said, done. So I went and worked for Coates. But they actually put me in their high precision zinc die casting factory, which made the, the zips for all the clothes. Nice. That, they bought okay. the business that made the zips. Um, because they liked the technology. And by the time I was working in the business, it was exclusively making car parts. It was very, very clever technology. Yeah. And um, it actually got sold. It's been sold quite a few times, but I think principally now they make parts that go inside computers. Okay. Um, very, you know, so so it, was a, yeah. it was a fascinating thing to join. But I, I actually joined a business that I thought made clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that, that was the production link. Yeah. And then I went back and joined Mars anyway. I stayed there yes. for three years and went to Mars. Ah, oh, well, excellent, excellent stuff. Um, you must have come across some really great characters throughout your career, and there must have been people who've really influenced you, both from a personal and a professional point of view. Oh. Tell us about some of those people. Well... I think my two main ones were both at Mars and one of which was um, the Mars brothers at the time noticed that they were almost predominantly male at the senior levels in their business. Mm. And so therefore they were pushing some, they, they, they actually set everybody targets to get senior women into roles. And uh, in, I was, I was quite new there and there was a, a, a senior woman there who was a great, mentor to me but I they were big over open plan offices and I learned so much from her she was very she always pushed me and sort of 
told me that she thought I could do more. And she moved me from being as a, pr a production manager into marketing and said, you know, I think you'll fire, you find you fire on all six cylinders working in marketing, which was absolutely very true as an analyst, analyst and creative and everything else. It was, it was enormous fun. But I learned a lot from her because she was one of the first women at a more senior level. And she sort of became a bit of a man in a skirt. Do you know what I mean? She, so she wasn't being the, and I learned so much from the fact that we need diversity at different levels, whether it be in race or sex or whatever else, because they, we want the different behaviors. So I learned a lot from seeing how she was trying to cope, but thinking, I want to get to that level, but I don't, I, I can see what you're doing wrong. I think it, yeah. it really helped, but she was a massive supporter. And another person who's always blown me away was Alan Layton, who I worked for for a while at Mars. And he is the leader that makes, if Alan Layton told you you could walk across that lake, you would walk across that lake. Right. He just got people to do things. Mm. And uh, he, he's somebody who I have always been a huge, hugely admire and sort of look at him as a leader and wish I could have been wish I could have been more like him. Try, oh. Tried to adopt the bits that worked. Well, I think everybody would definitely say you have been a, and continue to be an industry leader and inspiration to many people. So I, I, well, I think a lot of people... people there's lots of people <laughs> I look up to too, though. Well, I've definitely spoken to people who've named you as one of their inspirations. So, oh, so absolutely. Um, how do you see the sector changing? You, you must see massive change over the last uh, few years in terms of the way the supermarkets have come on, how online's developed, the, the adoption of technology. Where do you think the sector is going to grow from here? Do, do, do you see a big player like Amazon coming in and really making, I mean, they, they are in, but could they go even bigger? Or do, do you see maybe more smaller, nimble operators making, the, making their way through the industry? How do you see it? Well, I think that when they set my role up as Grocers Code Adjudicator, there were only 10 retailers nominated and they never, they did not write that legislation recognizing that there might ever be another retailer that got to a billion turnover in groceries. It was not future-proofed. I think that they assumed that it would just be, you know, this A would buy B and that, you know, everybody would just get smaller. So, um, the fact that Ocado Home Bargains and B&M have been designated since then, and there's probably, you know, you can see that if Amazon get to a billion turnover groceries, they will be, they will be um, um, designated as well. I don't think anybody expected competition to increase. Um, so I think that that's a good thing. I think that a lot of what I've seen, particularly in fresh produce, is how the large businesses are just getting larger and larger. And I think with a lot of the discipline of the code and the retailers following the code, but not only just in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of how they operate, has meant that many businesses have put more and more of their business into one retailer's basket. And I spoke to one fresh produce business that are 96% with one retailer. And the way they work, I was asking about consumer complaint charges. Mm. There are no consumer complaint charges. Consumer complaints are all monitored, but they're monitored for learning to inject back in the process to improve. It's not about, there's no funding stream there. It's all about education and learning. And I think that you know, everything to do with how you treat consumer complaints or the forensic auditors I mentioned earlier or forecasting, get any of those right and you are making for more efficient processes. Mm. 
And I still think there's some massive wins within our supply chain of everybody saying we are arm in arm here. We're all linked up. We're all in this together. And if you're hurting and something's going wrong, we can do something about it. And, and I see that as these people are getting larger and larger, they're much more embedded in each other. And of course, neither can afford for anything to go wrong. So you build in processes of what you do when things are going wrong to sort it out. So I think that the, the opportunity for the for anybody that is growing and is large already is enormous. But I think right at the other end, which I noticed when Ocado got designated, is their whole way that Ocado operate is allowing masses of new entrants a way to sell to the consumer, as does Amazon. And so therefore the opportunity for lots of small brands and small ideas and new ideas to get in front of the consumer is created as well. So, and, and of course, with the retailers getting more and more similar as they all reduce their range, they're all desperate for new ideas and new inventions. And in many cases, sort of trying to almost say, because we're helping you grow, you're not allowed to sell to anybody else, which creates another challenge for any new entrants. But I suspect it's a problem that many of them would are delighted to have um, when, you know, when you want to be in more retailers, but you feel very linked to one. So I think that there's opportunities at the extremes. And I think that if Amazon does, you know, what Ocado has done in enabling so many new businesses to get to their marketplace, um, that can only be exciting. Yes, indeed. Well, it's a wonder you get any free time uh, with all these different interests that you have. But, but I gather you, when you do, you've got a particularly unusual and interesting, interesting classic cars. You, you, you drive them? Do you race them? Tell, tell us a bit no, about that. Not, not racing, but this is, um, I mean, I feel a bit guilty because it's really my father's hobby. He's not with me, any, not with us anymore, but it's just a, becomes something that brings all of our family together. I have two siblings, one of whom lives in Hong Kong and the other one was in Hong Kong for a long while as well. But we've always come together for the London to Brighton veteran car run, which my father always used to do. We've now got three cars between us um, and uh, uh, the, children, the children are all driving them now. I suspect we'll probably have to get some more soon. But anyway, it's um, it's just some it's just become something that we share as a family. They are incredibly difficult to drive, and they're quite a challenge. And you need to understand them. And we take turns breaking down and helping each other. Um, but they're 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 a silly hobby, really. I mean, they don't they don't go down in value like any other car that you drive off the forecourt. But um, it, it's a challenge and it's exciting and you know the London to Brighton's always on the first Sunday in November so you're very often cold and soaking wet as well so it's just, I mean bear in mind I remember my father-in-law once asked me whether I had windscreen wipers on the car and I said John I don't even have a windscreen <laughs> just there you've just got all the elements from the top and the front and, and every which way and you have to be very careful driving in modern traffic you know, yeah. you've got to, oh, you've got, yeah. you, you, you can't brake at the same speed as anybody else. So it makes you to better, better drivers. Um, but uh, I, we, you know, I, we actually have a 1910 Bianchi, which can't do the London to Brighton, which has never left the family since it was new. Um, so it came down through a great uncle to my father and uh, now the, he left it to his three grandsons. Mm. And we've, uh, we were actually due to do a rally in the Isle of Man this year, but unfortunately that got cancelled. But yeah. um, it just it's it's something i think that we it brings a family together yeah yeah it sounds really fun um 
you, you mentioned your siblings, and I gather you've also got a sister who was a former professional tennis player, is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's my younger sister, Joy. There's only the three of us, so my brother lives in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah so Joy, Joy played at Wimbledon, and uh, I, I went down to London for the first time a couple of weeks ago, which felt very odd for somebody that did it every week for seven years. Um, but to watch her, because Wimbledon's closed, that the members are generally never allowed to play on court one or centre court. But they got the, they got the lawns already, got everything ready, but then had no matches. So they were all being allowed to do showcase matches. So I, I went to watch my sister playing on centre court and then on court one. Um, <laughs> oh, that and actually, be to be honest, she still, she still got a phenomenal serve. Um, I, I took lots of slow motion pictures of it. You know, she, she's, she, I say she played for England. She, you know, she was, wow. yeah. she was quite good. And, uh, you know, she, she was playing at the same time as the likes of Annabelle Croft, which people my age will have know about. She played Hannah Mandlikova. I, I did watch her do that. Oh, um, yes, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she played it. She, you know, she lost to her. I think she got a few games off her, but she won, you know, you, got a lot of, you get a lot of money for being knocked out the first round at Wimbledon. Yeah. I've been quite jealous at the time. You get a lot of, a lot of coverage on the BBC as well, I think. Yeah. But she's uh, also, it's quite interesting. She actually goes and does a lot of talks at schools yeah. um, about what sports taught her about leadership and management. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's, sport is fantastic you know, as, yeah. as a way, it's a, actually trying to get people who recognise that they might not be top of the year academically, but actually yeah. by, by, by getting involved in sport, that they're learning a lot of quali- well, a lot that will get them ready for the workplace. Yeah, indeed. Um, we're just about running out of time, but I do want to ask you what's left on your, on your bucket list. Have you got, have you got burning ambitions that, that you hope to pursue next? Uh, no, I haven't, but I've, I've, I've always been somebody that sort of waited for the jobs to come to me or to read something that just inspires me and yes. um i'm i think the gca has really given me a hunger for doing something that's going to make a difference and i i also would like if i did the next thing i'd want something that my children would look at me and you know my my daughter says to me we know what needs to be done about the environment we know how the world needs to change but you're the generation that's got the power to do it which makes me feel a little guilty. And I'm thinking, you know, has the GPA done anything for the, for the, for the younger generation? So, you know, I think that I, it's got to tick those two boxes, I think, about making a, making a big difference and something that my children will be proud of me to do. Yeah, wonderful. So well, I hope there'll I be could, something. <laughs> I suspect you'll have the offers absolutely yeah. flooding in. So, um, Christine, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I, I literally feel like I could talk to you all day. It's, you're such an interesting character. So, so thank you so much. Yeah, and you know, so if anybody ever wants to chat to me about their career, you can find me. You just Google me. I'm very happy to have a chat. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Michael. <laughs>